before we get to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 in our fuel series, we're going to start at the beginning of time. Um, God creates the world. He creates Adam. Adam is alone. You remember how this goes. Um, Adam is living in this kind of virtual paradise world and everything. But the Lord sees him and the Lord recognizes that something is missing. In Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. And so from the beginning, there's this recognition by God himself, our generous Father God, that we need other people. And part of this subtext here is, if God looks at Adam and says, it's not good for man to be alone, then God is saying, a relationship with me is not enough. He needs, man needs a relationship with other people, right? And so God recognizes that we need to be in connection with other people during our lives here. Life is better when it's lived together. We are created from the beginning for community. Um, connecting with other people is medicine for the soul. Loneliness is cancer, for the soul. And cancer, I know, it's a strong word, but I think loneliness is, is strong as well. It is a life-draining disease of the soul. And so Ecclesiastes chapter 4 is going to talk about loneliness, going to talk about relationships, going to talk about some of the things that we do perhaps unintentionally, that undermine the relationships that we need in order to thrive. So, let's go. Verses 7 and 8, Ecclesiastes 4. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. His eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. Why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. So here's this guy who in some of the metrics you could use to measure success was a success. Very wealthy, very well-to-do, very successful in that respect. Um, he works hard, lots of long hours, lots of overtime, if you will. He acquires a lot of, of material possessions, but his eyes are not satisfied. In other words, that's a way of Scripture saying he wants more. And as he is successful in this one metric of gaining material prosperity... He's, he's quite a failure in another, and, and that is, in, in terms of relationships, there is nobody around him. He has all of this. He has no one to share it with. We've all seen people like this, haven't we? I mean, it's the story of the man or the woman that scratches and claws their way to the top of the heap. I mean, they are competitive and they are good. And they end up at the top of the heap and they find out on top they are all alone. They're leaders, these men and women. They get out in front of the parade and they work as hard as they can. One day they turn around they find out there is no one following them in the parade. There's simply no one around them. And it is a sad story that gets repeated often. We live in a society... That values, uh, strike that, that loves winning. 
that, that hates finishing last. Winning isn't everything we're told in America. Winning is the only thing. There's hardly anything worse in our society than to be labeled a loser. I mean, what could be worse than that? Vince Lombardi once said, show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. That's, that's America. That's, that's as American as, as, as Ben Franklin and apple pie right there. Hatred of losing, love of winning. And there's nothing wrong with healthy competition. It, it certainly has its place. Nothing wrong with winning first place in an athletic competition or, or some competition like that. The competitive spirit can be a good thing unless it's carried into spheres where it is destructive. It is not such a good thing in your home. It is not such a good thing in your church. Relationally, ambition and co competition are poison. On a basketball court, great. In the sphere of relationships, not so great. The guy in Solomon's story won first place. I mean, he is the one with the pile of cash. He is the one who's reached the top of the mountain and, and, and he's all alone. This philosophy, just go with me for a second here, this philosophy that says winning is everything, this philosophy that says there's nothing more important than first place creates incredible dysfunction. I guess that's one thing I would thank, thank, thank Penn State University for over the last few weeks. I mean, this is a great illustration of the dysfunction that occurs even with seemingly good men when winning becomes first place. Because the question Solomon raises is, what is it that you had to sacrifice on the altar in order to win? in order to build your football program, in order to build your career, in order to build your fortune, what is it that you had to kill? And the irony of it all is that total determination, single-minded devotion to your work will end up not yielding fulfillment, but will end up yielding self deprivation. At least that's the story of the man that Solomon tells us about. Because less can actually be more when less is shared among friends. A trip to Lake Ray Roberts can be more than a trip to Venice when it's shared with friends. I believe this text is hitting us between the eyes in our culture of winning um, because, because we love first place here. You might even say we idolize first place. You know, and these kind of Vince Lombardi quotes and this mentality, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Um, these kinds of, uh, of quotes and things may be great for a pregame pep talk but they are not so great when you carry them into different spheres of life. I, I had a conversation with one of the moms um, 
from my daughter's junior high. It's going to be high school this year. Wow. Um, but this mom has, has twins, a boy and a girl. And these twins are bright and attractive and engaging. And they succeed in virtually everything they do. But here's the deal. And maybe you can identify with this. Here's the deal. These twins are incredibly competitive, right? I mean, she said, Gordon, it is incredible if one of them, they, get, they both get straight A's, right? She said, but if one of them gets a 98 and one of them gets a 97, the one who gets a 97 is depressed. And I laughed. And she said, no, I'm not kidding. Really, really depressed. She said, it is the craziest thing. They are always at war with each other, always in competition with each other. <sighs> Here's how Solomon explains this phenomenon. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4. Solomon says, I observed something. I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. Now, contrast that phrase that could be a great mantra for modern-day America. Contrast that with the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 19, verse 30. Jesus said, Many who are first will be last. And many who are last are first, or will be first. And Jesus lived this way, didn't he? He lived serving others. He lived sacrificially loving others. He lived reaching out to you know, the poor guy on the side of the road, um, the, the prostitute, uh, the, the, the leper who lived completely isolated from society. He lived treating the last place finishers as princes and princesses. That's the way he lived. And it's kind of interesting, just in hindsight, as we're making observations. Solomon made his observation. Jesus made his observation. It's interesting as we're making observations. As I think about Jesus, whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, I mean, think about this. Whether you believe he was the Son of God or not, think about this. Here is this Galilean rabbi born in this backward corner of the Roman Empire. The guy never CEO'd a company. The guy never wrote a book. The guy never led an army. He certainly never amassed a fortune. And yet, 2,000 years later, 2.2 billion people say he is Lord he is son of, son of God. So Jesus perhaps had something worthwhile here when he was talking about first place not being all it's cracked up to be. Frankly, his take on winning and losing is fairly scandalous that the first will end up last, the last will end up first. Let's let him catch this out a little bit more. Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 to 28. Jesus talking to his inner circle. Look, guys, I am going to, to pass the kingdom on to you. I will be with you. The Holy Spirit will empower you. But you will be on earth, my hands, my feet. 
And he says this to his inner circle. You know, you guys see in the pattern of the world, first place, numero uno, the head honcho, that's where it's at. He said in verse 26, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus believed in the power of finishing last. He knew that sometimes the greatest strength, the greatest power is, is knowing how to lose, is knowing when to lose, is knowing when not to cross the finish line, but when to slow down and help others who are having trouble with the race. And this isn't about, folks, this is not about accepting mediocrity. I already list the credentials of Jesus of Nazareth. Pretty impressive stuff. It's not about accepting mediocrity. It's not about denigrating hard work. It is about coming to terms with the idolatry of having to finish first. It's about understanding the very high relational cost of this competitive mentality in this realm of relationships. So rivalry, ambition, having to finish first, um, it is a barrier to building healthy relationships. It, It is a barrier to connecting with other people. On the other hand... So says Solomon. On the other hand, so is laziness. Right? So is laziness. So don't think that, that since rivalry is antagonistic to healthy relationships, then kind of kicking back and doing less and being passive, that must be the key. Solomon says in verse 5, Fools fold their idle hands leading to ruin. Fools fold their idle hands, leading to ruin. So nothing kills cooperation. Nothing kills a spirit of team. Nothing kills a sense of togetherness more than someone who just isn't trying. You know? Um, I'm grateful, Barbara. I'm grateful that, that you and I, we get to work on a church staff of people who really love what they do. We do. And it's a great thing. I don't take that for granted. There are a lot of places where that's simply not true. We work in an office where men and women have devoted themselves to this calling God has given them. There's a cooperative spirit. It is is a really fun place to work because of that. But it wouldn't be so fun if half the people were trying to figure out how they could get away with murder and not do a thing. It is fun because these men and women are working very hard. I enjoy that very much. Now, I think, given the context of this passage about lazy people folding their hands going to ruin, I think Solomon's talking about relationships. I really do. I think he's talking about folks who are frankly lazy in their friendship, lazy in their marriage, lazy in their work relationship, which pretty much guarantees when you are too lazy to talk about your problems and any real relationship has problems, right? 
You may not have problems in your relationship with the driver or the, uh, of the dart train that you take to work because you don't really have a relationship with that person. But anytime there is real relationship, there will be issues. And if you are too lazy to work on those issues, they're never going to get, they're never going to improve. I mean, it's that simple. As the text says, fools fold their hands, leading to ruin. Um, I see this in virtually every failed marriage. You know, he, does, he is too tired to have a conversation about what's going wrong in the marriage. Um, he doesn't want to work on the, on the marriage. Um, it, it's a couple who don't, don't have time to go on their, their church's marriage retreat. And we've heard all that stuff before anyway. We don't need that. Um, it's that kind of mentality, that kind of relational laziness that is generally behind a marriage that is falling apart. By the way, this is a perfect opportunity for our first commercial for a marriage retreat this September at Preston Crest. Wait for news. It's going to be great. We're going to be in a nice hotel. It's going to be fantastic. But that's not really what the sermon is about. But, but that is coming up, okay? So rivalry prevents folks from connecting. Laziness prevents folks from addressing the problems in their relationship. So both are relationship killers. Ecclesiastes 4.6 says that um, also there is this discontentment, the, the sense of always wanting more that tends to destroy relationships and cause people to feel alone as well. That's the story we start out with of the lonely man. And then in verse 6, it says that these folks that don't invest in relationships end up chasing the wind, chasing things that, that will never satisfy them. Um, here we go. We're going to switch from the negative to the positive, or rather Solomon is, starting in verse 9, talking about the, the benefits of connecting with other people. Solomon says, Two people are better than one. For they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help them. But if someone who falls, uh, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. How can one keep warm alone? Third example: a person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. This is a great reminder of what we already know, isn't it? I mean, loneliness stinks. <laughs> We're better off together. According to the text, work is better together. I mean, and, and, and Solomon, it's this dynamic, it's this synergy that says, when I'm working with another person, when we're dreaming together, when we're toiling together, when we've got our eyes on the prize together, we're better than just, than just two individuals. In a relationship, one plus one is not two. One plus one is greater than two. That, that when we work together, it's more than just our combined efforts if we were all alone. And so he says in work, you, 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 you're more, you, you prosper more, you yield more when you work together. He also says 
In verse 10, when one person falls, the other can reach out to help. But the one who falls alone is in real trouble. So, I mean, sometimes we fall. Sometimes we experience failure. Or sometimes you lose a loved one. Or sometimes you're in a season of depression. If you don't have life-giving relationships around you, Solomon says, you're going to have real trouble getting back up. But if you're connected to other people intimately, they'll help you bounce back. They'll help renew you. And then he finishes with that third example, the example of battle. The example of being under attack. He says, look, if you're alone and you're under attack, you're in real trouble. But again, there's synergy if there's two of you. If there's two of you, it's more than just adding another individual person. There's a synergy because now you can go back to back. And whereas before you may have had a complete weak spot, now you're covered. One of my favorite Aesop's fables from a long time ago. The first time I heard it, I just remembered it resonated with me. It's the story of this farmer. And this farmer, so this is written a long time ago, ancient fable. This, this farmer has these two sons that are always fighting. I mean, they always argue. They can't get along. And this farmer realizes, you know, this is going to create real problems for the family, especially when I'm gone. And so this farmer brings them together, and he has, um, you know, they have lots of firewood and stuff piled on the front porch, and he has these little um, to kind of kindling wood to, to get the fire started. He's got these little bunches of twigs that are tied up, and so he hands one of his sons one of these bundles of twigs. He hands the other son a bundle of twigs, and he says, I want you guys, let's see who's stronger. I want you guys to try to break these bundles of twigs. And so these things, you know, are pretty thick. And so they're trying to break it on their knee and they're trying to out, outdo each other. And neither one of them can break these bundles of twigs. Then he takes one of those bundles of twigs. He unties that twine. He, handles the, he hands them each an individual stick and says, break this. And they're like, you got to be kidding. Snap. And the farmer says, that's how it is with us. If we stand together, we are not easily broken. But if we divide, if we're alone, we can be snapped like these twigs. And I have to think, maybe, maybe Aesop had heard this other story from Solomon because Solomon says in verse 12, a triple braided cord is not easily broken. We're stronger together. Now, I see the genius of the Holy Spirit in the passage today. And here's how I see it, one of the ways I see it. Um, I just kind of struck me as I was working through this text this week. I see this genius of the Holy Spirit because he could have launched right into all of the benefits of relationships, right? In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Solomon could just said, here are the benefits. You know, if you fall down, there's someone to pick you up, all this good stuff. But he doesn't do that. And I think Solomon doesn't do that, but I think the Holy Spirit is working through Solomon here because if he just started talking about how great relationships are, we'd say, oh yeah, I know that. But instead, the Holy Spirit begins to talk about the things that you and I do that undermine relationships before the text tells us how good they are. And so it kind of catches us, kind of makes us think about 
our first place mentality, our competitive mentality, or our laziness in our relationships before it gets into why relationships are so important. All right. What I want to do here, and this is just kind of switch gears for a second as we finish up here quickly. I think there is some specific application to our, our church family. And you could take this into you know, marriage or into your workplace or into your fringe circle of friendships or whatever. I want to bring it here this morning into our church family because I think there's some really interesting takeaway um, if we think about the challenges that we have as a 1,500-member church in North Dallas. So, so just two things, really, that I just want you to, to kind of agree with me on, and we can create a new culture here, a better culture here at Preston Crest. Um, one of these is, is this idea that we're going to work together to create a culture of hospitality. A culture of hospitality. And this is going to involve a decision on, on a number of individual levels with all of us. I will warmly, I will warmly and enthusiastically welcome guests. Did you know that the Bible never, Old Testament, never commands us to be friendly? It's not in there. God never says, I demand that you be friendly. But in the New Testament alone, five times it commands us to be hospitable. What's interesting about this is the Greek word for hospitality is a word philonexia. Philonexia, which means love of strangers. Love of strangers. And often, this is my experience, I could be wrong on this, this is my opinion, okay, I'll preface with that, but often I find that when a congregation believes they are really friendly, they are very inhospitable. Because when people believe they are really friendly, Often what that means is, oh, yeah, our church is friendly. That means I love talking to my friends. I mean, we are joyful. We are enthusiastic. We're playful with each other. And it means that they're, they're turned into each other and they're turned away from the stranger. They're turned away from the guest. Now, let me tell you why this is particularly relevant to us at Preston Crest, because God has given us a huge blessing. It's a very unique blessing. I don't know if you've noticed, but here we are on Preston Road, right by 635, right by the tollway, right, right by 75. I mean, we are in a, a location where every week we have guests that come through. Most churches don't. It's every once in a while, and usually the guests come, you know, it's, it's the, the, grand, the grandkids from out of town or this or that. I mean, we are blessed to get guests every week here at Preston Crest. So that is an amazing blessing. Now, how do we steward that blessing? How, do, how does God expect us to take care of these beautiful souls that He sends our way? Well, think about this. When you walk into a church, particularly a larger church, for the first time, okay, think about this. Walk in for the first time, and you don't know anybody. Wow. That takes some courage. <laughs> that takes some real courage. So our guests that come through our door, these are courageous people. God has been working their life. God is sending them into His family, into His fellowship. And so it is incredibly important 
that we reach out to them. And what this means is not that you're going to ignore all of your friends, not that you're not going to talk to folks in your connection anymore. It's not what we're talking about. We're, what we're talking about is my first priority is to be intentional about enthusiastically and warmly greeting those f- folks, getting to know their name, having a little conversation with them, helping them out with where to go. Now, we have some ministries here at Preston Crest to help us with this. I don't want to get into that this morning. I mean, we can talk about the welcome desk. We can talk about greeters at the doors. We can talk about ushers. We can talk about stuff like that. But that's not really the point. I mean, those are great, and we have great volunteers working in those areas. But unless we all take this on, folks are going to fall through the cracks. So it's really a call for all of us. Now, my buddies are going to be around here 10 minutes after church is over, right? I mean, my friends, they're going to be hanging around 10 minutes after church is over. The visitor, like a bottle rocket, because it's uncomfortable to be in a place where you don't know anybody. And so obviously, they're going to be, okay, no one's talking to me, I'm gone. And so it is so important that, anyway, I know I'm very, 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 very big, big, big deal if we're going to grow. And I mean grow in our connection to each other, but grow in numbers as a community of faith. And I believe that God wants us to, is to just warmly receive these visitors. And honestly, it may seem a little scary to you or whatever. It's really a lot of fun. It is. And, and it may be something small, like just having a little conversation. You may up the ante and say, you know, I think I'm going to invite this, this couple or this person to go out to lunch with me and my group of friends. I mean, we're going to go down to Dickie's together. We're going to go out to, you know, wherever. Um, that may be what it means for you, but, but it's so important. The second thing, real quick, and we'll finish here. Um, the second thing, and these are, both, these are both specific to Sunday morning. We're talking about one block of time here. It's pretty simple stuff here. So I want you to think about praying with someone. Now, I'm not just talking about prayer time, which we have at the end of the sermon as we're singing each week. That's fantastic. That's an opportunity for you to pray with someone. But I want you to think about praying with someone or someones while you are here on Sunday morning because it is a way to connect. It is a way to go deeper. It is a way to stand together. It is a way to go back to back. It is a way to lift people up. And you may be feeling great, but someone else here may not be feeling great. And you can help pick them up by invoking the name of God together and praying together. That means in the lobby, um, sure, in this room, in, in your connection classroom, in the parking lot, just putting your arm around them, praying together. This is not rocket science. We are the people of God. We pray together, okay? I mean, probably not a great idea in the bathroom, all right, to put your arm, okay? That's a no-fly zone, okay? But the rest of the building is, is perfect for you to, to pray with somebody, I love this verse 12. Um, Solomon says, A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. That has echoes to me of Jesus Christ saying, Where two or three of you are gathered together, there I am. There's something powerful about two or three connecting in the name of Jesus. And so pray with each other while you're here and this unique opportunity we have on Sunday mornings. All right, finally, let me just say this. Look, this winning culture, this 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 feeling that I have that I need to win every argument, that I need to win every competition, that everything is competition... 
Jesus did all of that for you already, right? I mean, Jesus won. Jesus defeated the powers of hell and the powers of death single-handedly for you. Now you are more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ. You are more than first place. First place is a downgrade for you. It's a demotion for you. You don't have to win every argument. You can be more than a winner. You don't have to be afraid of dying. Jesus already died for you. Jesus takes the fear out of living. He allows me to see, to live in a new way. He allows me to see my friend get a promotion at work. Bill Turner just got a great, a great job promotion today. I am thrilled for Bill. It allows me to celebrate what God did for Bill Turner. Are you with me? Because a lot of times when that first place mentality is there, it's like, oh man, you got a bigger house. Or you got a promotion. Or your kids are doing well. Oh, it makes me feel bad. But if I'm more than a conqueror, if I accept what Jesus has done for me, I can celebrate. I can applaud. I can mourn with those who mourn and celebrate with those who celebrate.